honor to be able to worship with you and preach God's word this morning. Thank you for the introduction, Joseph. And uh, I know Pastor Paul's rest is much deserved. Um, you're very, very blessed to sit under the preaching uh, of Pastor Paul. I love his preaching. Every time I sit under it, I'm, I'm extremely blessed. So uh, I wanted to bring a message from Psalm 37. It's not one of the better known Psalms, but it's, it's got a really important message about a very difficult topic that I think our church is going to uh, need in the coming days. The church, our church, all believers are going to have to deal with the question that this psalm wrestles with. So if you want to turn in your Bible to so Psalm 37, it's a little bit of a longer one. Uh, it's 40 verses, uh, so bear with me as I read through that. And as I do so, may God bless the reading of his word. Wherever you get your copy of the scriptures, whether it's the old-fashioned one uh, on the printed page or in your phone or something, let's turn to Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of the wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I've been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. 
The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Rabbi Harold Kushner years ago wrote a book that you have probably heard of, even if you haven't read it. The title is When Bad Things Happen to Good People. If you want to sell a lot of copies of a book, it's a great title because it's something we all wrestle with at some point in our lives about what seems to be unjust suffering when things happen in life that we just can't make sense of and we're left wondering why. Why is this happening to me? Why does it happen at all? Especially for those of us who believe in God, why would God allow this to happen? It's the problem of evil, the the problem of suffering that theologians and just average believers have wrestled with and debated for generations. This psalm deals with that topic, kind of, but in a little bit of a different way. Instead of when uh, bad things happen to good people, the psalmist is wrestling with, what about when good things happen to bad people? When the wicked seem to prosper, when evildoers seem to get ahead, and the righteous seem to suffer and experience hardship. And it doesn't just apply to specific instances or in uh, persecution or anything like that. It does include all of that. But this is a general question of why in this world do things sometimes seem unfair? Why does it seem that nice guys finish last? Why is it that good things seem to happen to bad people and bad things seem to happen sometimes to good people? It can create in us a big crisis of faith. As John Calvin said about this psalm, since the faithful, as long as they pursue their earthly pilgrimage through life, see things strangely confused in the world, unless they can assuage their grief with the hope of a better situation, their courage would soon fail. And so David writes this psalm for us, to assuage our grief, as John Calvin would say, to comfort us in our sorrows and also to strengthen and encourage our faith and our hope and our love so that our faith doesn't fail when it seems that evil people and wicked people seem to win and get ahead in life. As I was preparing this message, I thought, you know, like all good communication strategy, I should start with a personal interest story and think of an example uh, from history of somebody who suffered really unjustly. And I, I kind of held back from that because I'm thinking that you all have seen in the headlines every single day uh, examples of this, of uh, people who are amassing wealth and power uh, and privilege all by unjust means. It's all around us if you really look for it. 
And then I also wanted you to reflect and think, what are the things in my life that have seemed unfair when people have harmed me when I didn't deserve it? Not to develop a victim mentality, uh, but to recognize maybe where people have injured you or even abused you with their power and their greed or their control or any other kind of sinful motivation. Most psalms are spoken to God, but some of them are spoken to us. And in this psalm, David is giving its wisdom, and he's speaking to us. He's, he's revealing a perspective on life, helping us take the long view, to kind of see things from more of a heavenly perspective so that we can make sense of the unfair times here in life. And the message is this, when life is unfair, trust God. When I was developing that main idea, I was so tempted to just add more after trust God. Like lots of other things you could do to change the situation. And there are a lot of things in this psalm, but I just, I couldn't bring myself to add anything. And it's just that simple. When life seems unfair, David is teaching us, you're just going to have to trust God, period. No comma, no semicolon, nothing to add to that. When life seems unfair, trust God. The problem of evil and suffering in the world is usually thought of in these terms. Well, if God allows it, either he's not good, even though he has the power to do something about it, or he is good, and yet he doesn't have the power to do anything about it. But the scriptures teach us the God we know and worship through Jesus Christ is the God who is good and is all-powerful. But that still doesn't solve the problem, does it? Well, then why does suffering happen? Why is there injustice in the world? Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked seem to prosper? And we begin to ask all the why questions. It's this very question the book of Job wrestles with. Because Proverbs and a lot of the wisdom literature lays it out in real clear principles. The righteous, if they do what God asks, will prosper. Wicked people are going to suffer because they're living not in accordance with God's will. And then Job's story comes along and kind of twists all that up and says it's not always that clear. There are exceptions. There are times when righteous people suffer. And in those moments, we always ask why. But let me tell you this. Say it if that's what you think and that's what you're feeling and that's what you want to (laughs) express, but it's not going to really be answered. God never answers Job's why questions. The psalm doesn't give us answers to the why question. What it does answer is the who and the how. The who who question can be answered. Who can we trust? Who will make it right? Who can we depend on? God. How can we deal with it? By trusting in him and committing our way to him. This is an acrostic psalm. That means that... uh, Each letter of each section is a letter in the alphabet, and so it starts with Aleph, which is A in Hebrew, and then Beit, the second section, which is B, then Gimel, Dalit, Hey, all the way down the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, Uh, and Psalm 119, Psalm 25, this is kind of a technique that the psalmist would use to arrange their psalms, and as you were reading through this with me, you're probably realizing, wow, what's the, what's the organization of this thing. It just seems to kind of go around all kinds of different topics and can't really figure out the structure of it. And you're right. 
because the structure is kind of hidden in the original Hebrew language. Uh, and he takes two themes, the, the unfairness of life and the goodness of God, and like a double helix, like the DNA structure, these two things throughout all 40 verses just kind of uh, wind themselves around each other all the way through in alphabetical order. And so the thought came to me, how could I organize and explain this many verses with this many different themes and topics from an acrostic poem? And I thought, how about an acrostic sermon? So we're going to take the word trust, and if you write down in your notes or somewhere on a piece of paper vertically the word trust, T-U-R-T-R-U-S-T, you guys just lost all confidence in me. You're like, I'm not listening to another thing this guy says. Uh, I did spell it right in my sermon, so T-R-U-S-T, vertically, and we're going to take the first T, and we're going to look at what it means to trust God when life seems unfair. The first T stands for take another look at life from God's perspective. That's the first step in trusting God when life seems unfair. That's what this psalm does. It helps us to zoom out a little bit, to look at the big picture And we're not ever going to be like God, nor should we try to be God. He's not going to tell us everything. He's revealed a certain amount of things. And we can have that perspective of what he's revealed about the beginning from the end, the alpha from the omega, and see how things ultimately will turn out. And David seems to think it's helpful to have God's perspective rather than zooming in narrowly on just what you're experiencing now. And one of the things that can create lots of distress and and despair in our lives is when we measure everything by right now. And I love how David in this psalm says at one point, I once was young, now I am old. So this is an old man, David, towards the end of his life, a man who's been through something. You know, he's not a teenager or a 20 or 30-something telling you all of his idealistic views of how God ought to work in the world, but a man who has hammered out his practical theology through tons of injustice. If anybody experienced injustice, David did, and I think Pastor Paul has been taking you through that lately. But he's giving us the wisdom of an older godly man who sees the big picture, sees the long view, who knows that it doesn't just all work out by the time you're 60 or 70 or 80 years old. But David wants us to take another look at life from God's perspective and realize first that God sees everything. If you look in verse 12 and 13, he says, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. When life seems unfair, we wonder, does God know? Does God see? Does God care? David makes it very clear throughout this psalm in many different places. Even in verse 18, he says, The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. So first, take a look at it from God's perspective. Realize God sees everything. The beginning from the end, he sees what you're going through. And it is astounding to me that Almighty God, the creator of the universe, that he is aware, not only that he's aware, but that he actually cares and is moved by the suffering of people in this world. As big as God is. What is man that you are mindful of him, Psalm 8 says. Why do you care so much? Why did God come to earth in the flesh, in the life of Jesus, and 
Time after time in the Gospels, when he saw human suffering, that it says his guts were shaken and moved with compassion for our little problems down here. Secondly, the reign of the wicked is fragile and brief, and this is probably one of the most helpful perspectives that this psalm gives us. I love in verse 1, I think it's verse 1, verse 2, excuse me, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Now, your grass might not wither often, but mine does. I can't keep the grass in my backyard growing. I'm about to give up on centipede. They say it's great in this region. I say, nah, I need to find another. If you have a suggestion for better grass. But David's writing from the perspective of somebody in the Middle East who, who would see in these uh, arid regions grass that pops up for a few days. The sun comes and scorches it, and it's gone next time you come by. And David is saying, remember, keep a perspective on the wicked, and remember that that they're just that fragile and brief. And when you're in this life, it seems like they aren't fragile, that their reign isn't brief, that it's never going to change. But God's perspective is he sees and he even laughs at them as if this is no big problem for me to handle. And he laughs because he thinks they're going to get away with it. But he knows that their day is coming. Towards the end, he, he mentions, he compares a prosperous, wicked, ruthless man to a green tree that's growing and spreading its limbs. In verse 35 through verse 36, he says, I've seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. I sought him, but he could not be found. David's saying, the wicked will not last forever. They're fragile and they're brief, though when they are in power, it seems like they will remain forever. The wicked will not get away with it, is the third thing. God's perspective is that he sees everything, that the reign of the wicked is fragile and brief, and then the wicked will not get away with it. In verse 9, he says, For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And that word cut off is throughout this psalm in several places, in several different ways. They will perish. They will be cut off. That's the perspective that God gives us. A quick word about the wicked and the righteous. The wicked in this psalm, like throughout most of the Old Testament, are unbelieving people who have no fear of God in their eyes because they say in their heart, you can say anything you want to in your heart. That doesn't make it true, right? I can say, you know, the walls are black. Close my eyes and say in my heart, the walls here are black. But they're really white, no matter what I say in my heart. But the wicked are people who say, there's no God. No one's going to do anything about it. I can do what I want. Power defeats truth. If I can do it and get away with it, then it's right and it's allowable. They act without impunity. They serve themselves. They're motivated by greed. And their lives are characterized by ruthlessness and evil conduct. But the Bible also teaches that there's really no one good, no one righteous. You can read Romans 3, Psalm 53. The righteous in this psalm are those who have been brought into a covenant relationship with God by grace, just like we are only made righteous, declared righteous through the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's only by grace that we are saved and declared 
righteous. And so we need to be really careful about an us versus them distinction of the wicked versus righteous because we all are indebted to the grace of God. But the, the wicked are the people who don't believe there is a God or if there is a God, they have no fear of him and no desire to find refuge in him or to be redeemed by his grace. But we're through the T. Let's go to the R. Resist the temptation to take matters into your own hands. Once you have God's perspective, you need to remember to resist the temptation to take matters into your own hands. Because when life seems unfair, when the wicked seem to get away with doing what's wrong, we are tempted. We come under a strong temptation. It can be subtle or it can be very obvious. And the first way that we are tempted is to get angry. Anger is a signal. Anger is a signal something's wrong, that something's not being done that should be done, that something's being done to us that should not be done, that something needs to change. Anger is not sinful in itself. There is nothing wrong with feeling anger. But anger leads us to do things and say things and into other things that are sinful. The word fret not yourself here, it's like a, it, the, the root is literally to grow hot, to burn within in the Hebrew. Uh, and so it's to kind of work yourself up into distress and get, get heated with, with indignation. And the psalmist tells us that you're in a very vulnerable place when you get there. He says in verse 8, it only tends to evil. James affirms this in his letter when he says, the anger of man cannot accomplish the righteousness that God requires. In other words, you can't ever do anything right when you're motivated by anger. (laughs) Anger is a signal, it's helpful, it instructs us, but there is such a thing as righteous anger, but I will tell you on this earth, I've found it to be extremely rare that when we act out of anger, especially a fleshly anger, it rarely accomplishes what God would require. After we get angry, we're tempted to envy them. The psalmist shows us how easy it is to envy people who are getting ahead and who are prospering. Even if they're not wicked people, it's easy for us within the church to see other believers who, you know, they have more than us or they seem to have more gifts or more material prosperity or their life seems easier and we can we can envy them or we can envy their place of position or authority in the church envy is a dangerous thing cyprian an early church leader uh, in north africa who wrote a treatise on envy said it is a gnawing worm of the soul a plague sore of our thoughts a rusting out of the heart that it makes another's glory one's own penalty And as it were, applies a sort of executioner to one's heart to torment one's own thoughts and feelings. Envy is a gnawing worm of the soul, and it can be provoked in us by unfair situations in life. When we get there, when we're angry, when we begin to envy, we begin to want to compromise. Maybe we should adopt the methods of the wicked. They're getting ahead, maybe to share in their success or to get things done. Maybe we need to take matters into our own hands. And if you can't beat them, join them. Maybe the ends justify the means. And we want to take matters into our own hands and put things right in this world. So take another look 
at life from God's perspective. Resist the temptation to take matters into your own hands. The you is unload your burdens onto God. In verse uh, 5, he says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Commit, it's an interesting way to translate the Hebrew word there because it's literally roll. Roll your way onto God. The images of somebody carrying like Atlas, you've seen, you know, the Atlas myth of the guy trying to hold the world up on his shoulders. And it's saying, roll all this stuff you're fretting about and frustrated about and angry about and all of your envy, all of your fears and insecurities, roll that over onto God's shoulders. Martin Luther said this psalm is a call to learn patience and to leave the management and government of God to all. I'm going to read that again. To leave the management and government of all to God. Unload that burden onto him. Cast your anxieties on him, for he cares for you, Peter teaches us. There's only one set of shoulders strong enough to bear the injustices of this life. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And of his peace there will be no end, Isaiah teaches us. So unload your burdens onto God, and then fourthly, seek all your satisfaction in God. That's the other teaching of this psalm in dealing with the unfairness of life. Seek all of your satisfaction in God. If you look at verses 3 and 4, we see this put really clearly. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Take your eyes off of the injustices, put them back on God, find all your satisfaction there. Delight yourself in the Lord. Trust in him and do good. We could take this psalm and walk away with kind of a quietistic approach to the Christian life. Do you know what I mean by that? There's an activistic view of the Christian life that, you know, we have to get out there and get stuff done. You know, evangelicals love the activist kind of approach. We could walk away with more of the quietistic kind of like, we just need to trust God, not get involved, and just wait for God to handle it. There's nothing we can do. That's not at all what he's saying in this psalm. He's saying trust in the Lord, but then do good. Commit your way to the Lord. Live out your faith. If people are out there creating injustices, maybe God's people ought to be a part in ways that they can of writing them, of doing what good we can in this world. But first, we have to seek all of our satisfaction in God to delight ourselves in who he is and all of his plans and all of his purposes and then he says to dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. And the translation is hard to do there, but it's the imagery of, of sheep in a pasture. And, and basically, you know, sheep will sit there in a pasture and feed on the grasses that are there. And he's saying that the grasses are like faithfulness. Feed on faithfulness. Be where you are. As the little cliche says, bloom where you're planted. And so part of dealing with the unfairness of life is to delight ourselves in God, to find joy and satisfaction in who God is, but also where he's put you for the time. Focus on walking out your life faithfully instead of trying to 
fly around like a superhero fixing all the problems in the world. 1 Peter 1.8, he says, Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Keep your focus on God. Delight yourself in him. And then there's a promise with that, that he will give you the desires of your heart. There's a lot here that we could unpack, but it doesn't just mean that whatever things you happen to desire, God's going to give you. But if you're really delighting yourself in God and who he is, in his promises and his plans, his purposes, where he's placed you in life, what he has called you to, if you're delighting yourself in that, your heart will be so shaped and transformed through your delighting in him that they, that your desires will be more in line with his will. And so he'll grant those things because you're going to be desiring more in harmony with what he wants to accomplish in your life. So seek all your satisfaction in God. And then finally, there's this, and this is the big one. Take hold of God's promises. That's our final T. This psalm is filled with promises. Take hold of God's promises. Do you know how to take hold of God's promises? I'll let Joseph and Paul tell you how to do that. But can you take hold of them like this is true and this is what I'm going to base my beliefs, my feelings, my thoughts, my actions, my relationships on? I will build my hope that this is true no matter what I see around me that God is dependable and trustworthy, that he doesn't stutter or toy with his people by promising things he can't or won't deliver, but if he said it, he's going to do it. A couple of the types of promises in here that he will never forsake us. And Jesus reiterates that to us. Behold, I'm going to be with you to the very, very end of the age. You're never alone, no matter what you experience, no matter how unfair. In this not evidence that God has left you or abandoned you, because that is one thing you will question as soon as you suffer something unjustly. Have I done something wrong? Has God left me? Is he, has he sidelined me? Is he too busy for me? The answer is no, he's not. And he will not leave you. He'll provide for you. Verses 19, verses 25 through 26, they all promise this. In times of famine, we'll have abundance. David says, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He's ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. We don't have to cheat to get ahead. We don't have to play the dirty game the way the world does. We can trust that God will provide for us. He'll defend you. It's all over this psalm. All over the place. He will vindicate you, verses 6 and 34. In the end, it will come out what was right and what was wrong, what was true and what was false, who was wicked and who the righteous were. God will ultimately vindicate everything. In verse 34, he puts it this way, Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land, and you will look on when the wicked are cut off. He will also reward us is the final promise. If you look in verse 9, you look in verse 11, the evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land, but the meek shall inherit the land. This is where Jesus 
Jesus is quoting this psalm in his Beatitudes when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In the Old Testament, the word land and earth were the same word. And so the land of Israel versus the earth, there's not a clear distinction. Translators have to make an interpretation there. Because what God did with and for and in Israel, in that land, in the Old Testament, it was a a pattern for what he wanted to do with the entire world. And Jesus shows us that if we will trust God, even when life seems unfair, because it will, and even when there's injustices we have to deal with, that we can trust that we will be rewarded, not because of our goodness or even the quality and strength of our trust, but because he's promised to provide for us a good place in eternity. He will reward us in many ways. And blessed are the meek. I don't know of a better word to describe the type of posture and lifestyle called for in this psalm than the word meek. Meek is not weak. Meek is not passive. It actively trusts It accepts what cannot be changed or what is not in our place to change, but then it commits itself to do what is right and good under the eyes of God. And there's nobody who demonstrated meekness better than Jesus Christ. There is nobody who suffered more injustice or whose life was more unfair than the Lord Jesus Christ. The crucifixion is the most unjust event in all of history in which Wicked and unbelieving people put to death the Lord of life, the Son of God, the innocent and righteous one. But out of that injustice comes justice for us, that we can be called just, right with God. And by what Christ accomplished on that cross, gave him the authority and the right and the power to fix everything this psalm wrestles with and everything that you and I wrestle with in this life so that we can trust that he who was crucified, dead, and buried under Pontius Pilate and was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God will return, and he will judge, and he will not just take us as disembodied spirits to float around in the clouds, which sounds eminently boring, doesn't it? It won't be because we'll be in God's presence. It will be extremely, infinitely Exciting and satisfying. But where we will be is what the Bible calls a new heavens and a new earth. You know, God's plan in the beginning was good. He didn't think, I think I'll try a created order, you know, and if it doesn't work out, if it's not great, then we'll go to a disembodied, unphysical universe. Peter tells us in his second letter, we are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. You know what that means? where there's no more injustice, where there's no unfairness, where there are no more tears, where there is no more harm or hurt, where there is no more sorrow or grieving or death or sickness. And all of our tears have been wiped away. All of the wrongs have been righted. All the things sad have come untrue. That's what we are trusting God for and looking forward to. And as the innocent, righteous sufferer, our Lord and Savior Jesus, who has guaranteed it and who will deliver it one day. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, 
to celebrate communion, to remember the, the breaking of the body, the pouring out of the blood of the Lord Jesus. We are remembering his death, but we are having through signs and seals that are visible, that we can see and touch and even taste and ingest the very body and blood of Jesus who gives us life and who has promised an eternity with him. In this meal, we're reminded that it is Christ who has paid for our salvation, that there is nothing that can separate us from his love. No difficulty in this life, no injustice, no evil intentions of bad men or women, or even our own sin, weakness, or failure. But the strengths and the righteousness, the innocence, the justice and the merits of Jesus. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread And he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, as I now ministering in his name offer it to you. And in a similar manner, he took the cup, and he poured it out, and he gave it to his disciples, as I now offer it to you. As we partake, we have these little prepackaged communion sets, and so you're going to peel the thin layer off the top first, if you'll do that now. Nice and gently, just pull it straight back, and you'll find the wafer. Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take of it and eat, each of you, and do this in remembrance of me. You'll peel back the next layer, being careful not to squeeze it. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant. In my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, drink of it, each of you, in remembrance of me. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love and grace that we see pictured for us in this meal in the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus, by the injustices and the evil deeds of wicked people. But we know that he bore our sins in his body on that cross. And that it is through that ministry that we are made whole, that we are healed, that we are forgiven, and we are declared righteous and accepted as your children. And we are given a destiny and an eternity in that new heavens and new earth where peace and righteousness are going to reign completely and forever. We thank you for this. We praise you and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.